uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, I believe I'm going to, I'm under the conviction that the gospel of Luke is a spirit-inspired testament of Jesus Christ. I believe that it is 100% true. I also believe that it is a particular genre. It's written in a particular style. That particular genre is story. It's a narrative, okay? So when you hear me say things like, look at this part of the story, don't hear me say, look at this fake thing that somebody wrote one time. They're just making up stories. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the genre is story. What that means is, is that it's not primarily a history book, right? It's primarily a story. In other words, the author is not just recounting things that happened, but he's recounting things that happened in a particular way in order to make a particular point. Does that make sense? He's trying to make a theological point, so he's organizing it in a certain way in order to make that point. That's why I think most clearly seen in the Synoptic Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And why are there differences? Because each of those writers is trying to make a certain theological point. In my opinion, they're not contradictory. They're just different in the way that they're writing, the way they're organizing things. And uh, so when you compare the synoptics, the synoptic gospels especially, you'll see those differences kind of stand out and you'll begin to see, oh, this is why that author, particular author is writing. So my point in saying this is, I'm going to jump into the middle of the story here in Luke chapter 10, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a run-up to Luke chapter 10. So we're going to start kind of in Luke chapter 9, and then we're going to spend most of our time in Luke chapter 10, because I think he's written this in a particular way, particular order, in order to make a significant theological point. Okay, ready for this? Luke chapter 9, we'll start in verse 51. So just go back a couple of verses. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Look what he says there. When the days drew near for him, this Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So, at this point, there's a turn in the narrative, a turn in the story, where Jesus is not out here in the Galilean ministry. He is now turning and setting his face to go to Jerusalem. What effect should that have on the reader when we see that? We ought to be thinking, if we've read the Gospel of Luke before, we ought to be thinking, what are you thinking, Jesus? Why would you do that? You just got done telling us that you're going to be killed by the leaders of the religion that runs that city. So why would you say, like, I'm going to be killed those people? Why wouldn't you say, I set my face away from Jerusalem? But he says, no, I'm going straight for it. So it's kind of a bleak, like, what is going on here? So look back, uh, just to show you, in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, then the Son of Man, this is Jesus saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, those are the leaders of the Jewish religion that is running Jerusalem, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. So here he is saying, I'm going straight for it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So, you know what would be helpful though, if he's going to Jerusalem and says that's where he's going to be killed? No, would be helpful? Some more followers, right? Let's get some more followers to be a part of what we're doing while we go to Jerusalem. Okay, well, look at verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Sorry, I'll read fast. I'll slow down. To make preparations for him. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
So people didn't receive him there. What is going on? It sounds like um, people are rejecting him. He needs more believers. Wait, here comes some guy. Skip ahead just a couple of verses. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. All right, sweet. We got a guy that wants to follow Jesus. This is really good. We need him to be a part of it. And he's telling, he's, he's not just saying, I want to follow Jesus. He's telling Jesus, I want to follow you. So Jesus' response is going to be good, right? What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus said to him, verse 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, is that how you recruit people? Keep going. To another, he said. He went to another. Jesus said to him, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to, hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is going on here? This is not how you recruit people to be a part of your thing. What is he doing? No, no, look, hey, Jesus, tell them about the, uh, the streets of gold. Tell them about that. Tell them about, like, how nice heaven is going to be and how calm everything is going to everything's going to be fine you know tell them about that stuff i mean tell them about like the benefits the results of following jesus but don't actually tell them about following jesus don't tell them that part this is not how we do evangelistic messages we say don't ask them to count the cost what you need to do is corner them with a series of questions right where they're like, all right, fine. What do I got to do? Just pray this prayer real quick and you'll be good. All right, fine. Adios. See ya. Maybe we can corner them a series of questions to get them to, to, to follow Jesus. That's what, we should, that's what Jesus should be doing. Like, see, here's my questions. I go down the line and then, see, see, gotcha. You got to follow Jesus now. I win. You lose. You ever seen an evangelistic strategy like that before? Um, I think sometimes we have it mixed up. We're not just trying to get somebody to make a decision. We're trying to make disciples. I just listened to a sermon by a guy named, um, you may have heard of him, his name is um, Mike, Michael Saunders. Um, you heard of this guy? Real funny guy. Great guy. Okay. Uh, and he's talking about just that. He's talking about that, making disciples. Not just trying to get somebody to pray a prayer and like, sweet, I won, you know. But you're trying to get somebody to be a follower of Jesus. You're trying to show somebody what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what's going on here with Jesus. This call to follow Jesus, this call to be a follower of Christ. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, a Christian, it's no easy call. This is serious stuff. I mean, it, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you your life. One commentator says this, 
This passage is significant because it shows that discipleship is not a fly-by-night affair. Discipleship requires that Jesus and the kingdom be the priority of life. Jesus' situation is worse than that of beasts. Will you follow him? Will you submit your life to him and follow him? I mean, foxes have these luxurious homes, holes. Birds of the air have these really beautiful nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. If that was the truth, because it is, would you follow him? Would you follow him even if it meant homelessness? I, there's a few families from our church, as I mentioned earlier today, a few families from our church that are planning to move to Salt Lake City, to Utah with us, to help plant a church in, Lord willing, in Logan, Utah. Um, two families have already committed, the third family is in the process of getting, um, you know, talking to elders and pastors, talking to mentors, they want to move out there with us. There's four other families who are praying about it and want to make a trip and visit and see if this is something they want to do. Well, one of the families, he, um, they had us over for dinner and um, he is going to be retiring from the sheriff's office uh, a year from this April, so April 21. And he says to me, I just want to retire so I can help people more. Like, praise the Lord. What an awesome view of retirement. Then, he, so he said, you know, he's, they're really interested in moving up to Salt Lake, out, out to Utah with us. And then I said to him, after, see, Abby, my wife, and Judy, they went into the kitchen at one point, and I said to him, look, yeah, I know, all your family has just moved back into town, all your kids are here now, all of his kids are unbelievers, and so he has this awesome opportunity to share Christ with them, and it just... I know you have grandkids, you want to be around your grandkids and stuff here, and uh, he says, no, 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 it's not a consideration for me because of this text right here. Let the dead go and bury their dead. The one who puts his hand to the plow, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to be a part of something, and the family factor is not a factor. The factor for him is sharing the gospel with his family or moving. That's difficult. It's not an easy decision. We better take this following Jesus' life seriously. It's no joke. Our lives depend on it. For what does it profit a man, chapter 9, verse 24, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or lose and loses or forfeits himself? is really serious. The call to follow Jesus is serious. Then, chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72, two by two, every town and place where he, where he was about to go. Listen to how Jesus, Jesus sends him in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Is, is this the impression we get from pop Christian radio? Just wondering. 
Is that what we get? No, everything's fine. And if you just trust Jesus, everything is going to work itself out and be fine and good. And well, it's like, well, yes, it's going to be fine if you mean you get Jesus and that's all you need and want. Then, yes, that's right. But look, our call is to be uh, they're sent out in, as lambs in the midst of wolves. So, as I was mentioning earlier, my neighbor um, just moved into our, into our next, uh, next door to us this past year. She grew up in the Mormon church. She rebelled in the Mormon church and never was baptized. So she was rebellious in her family. She faced um, uh, many, lots of difficulties um, in the Mormon church as a teen. And this is what she says to us. When we told her that we're going to be going to Utah to tell people about Jesus, knowing that Utah is densely Mormon, she says, I know you think you've thought this through, but you haven't. Don't go. This kind of text is what comes to mind. She says, look, she's, she's an unbeliever. She says, look, if you start taking people from their church, they're coming after you. Why couldn't you just leave good and well alone? Everything's fine here. Great neighborhood. You have a really cute family. I think so. Why can't you just leave it alone? It's fine. Everything's going fine. Why would you go across the country? And she said things like, it's going to ruin your marriage. She said things like, one of your kids is going to become a Mormon, and then you're going to be in a family of Mormons. So please pray for us. And all we could say is we really do trust the Lord. That, as the Great Commission says, that we want to go and make disciples and that he will be with us to the end of the age. Praise the Lord. We don't make decisions based upon fear. We make decisions upon what Christ has called us to do and opportunities that come before us. So we go. Mostly, these 72 are rejected. Verse 16, you'll see that emphasized. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who, you, who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Are you getting the point? It's not easy. It's, it's a call. It's not a call of a life of ease. When the 72 return, they rejoice at how even demons, this is verse 17, how even demons are subject to his name. But look what Jesus says in verse 17. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the Spirit is subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So they're like, we did some really amazing stuff. But you know what Jesus, well, you know what's even more amazing? Is that you're a follower of Christ. That's what's more amazing. And look at this next truth. There's the great reorientation. Yeah, that stuff is great. It's really great. But you get to be a part of the family of God. This next truth, though, says in verse 21 that 
This truth is being revealed to children. It's serious. The fall of Christ, uh, to follow Christ is serious, but also it's simple. You see that? It's a serious call to follow Jesus, but it's simple that even, even kids can understand. Praise the Lord. Verse 21, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So in one sense, Christian, this Christian life is no child's play, but in another sense, it's for children. Children in here? You know, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders, y'all? Decide to follow Jesus with your entire life. All things for him. Trust in him and him alone. Start living a death to self kind of life, the denial of self, and follow him with your life. Parents, parents, call your children to this. From day one, call your children to follow Jesus over and over and over. Help them see at a young age that life is not about them. You do that by not running a child-centered home. Put authority in their life that they must follow every time so that when Christ calls them to himself, they say yes. Being a parent is a serious but it's an amazing opportunity to make disciples of Jesus take that seriously. What I tell people, if you're a parent in here and it's awkward to, to talk about Jesus with your children, you have a really shallow relationship with your children. If you're a follower of Jesus and it's, I mean, you can apply that to your friends, you can apply that to your husband or wife, you can apply that, you can apply that to your, any relationship that you have. It's awkward to talk about Jesus you have a really shallow relationship with that person. How do you get down to anything if you can't bring God into the picture? This following Jesus is, is serious, but it's simple. Kids can understand it. So kids, I call you, believe. Repent and believe. Understand what Jesus is saying here. Follow him with your life. It's not, life is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about others. Not about us. It's about Jesus first. So, this is it. Verse 23. Ready? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, Jesus says. For I tell you that many prof prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see, and hear what you hear and did not hear. So this is it. The kings and the pro prophets have spoken of this and have hoped for this, and it has come. Jesus has arrived. So our emotions are over the, over the place. It's a bleak narration. Jesus headed to die. But at the same time, this is a joyous thing, because this is what... This is what the prophets have been hoping for, and we get, the disciples get to be a part of it. Now we come to our primary text. Ready? There's an interruption in our primary text. I believe that the preceding texts are heading this direction. 
and I think it's marked by a, by a word. That word there is behold. You see that in verse 25? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer asks the million dollar question. I mean, like, yes, the question. Is this a question that you would love to hear? Hey, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks the question. It's a great question. Even though he was bent on trying to put him to the test, Bent, he was a little bit antagonistic as he's talking to Jesus. But Jesus, like a good teacher, answers the question, or like my dad would always do, he's a teacher, answers the question with a question. He says, what does the law say? I mean, the, the man's a lawyer. What he's telling him is, you know the answer to this question. Why are you asking me that? That's why dads do that to you, just so you know. That's why we ask questions. When you ask questions, we ask questions back because we know you know the answer. The lawyer, this is what Jesus does, the lawyer answers, and he was right. He answers the great Shema. The Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Remember? Simple. But also serious. Simple. Serious. That's it. Love God, love neighbor. Well, what does that all mean? Thanks for asking. Let's start with loving your neighbor. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to, to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So, exhibit A. He just got done saying, love God, love neighbor. So what does that look like? Well, here's what loving neighbor looks like. Number one, love your neighbor. The question from the lawyer bent on self-justification is, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with a parable of a man, a certain man, a fellow human being. Doesn't name him. He's barely described. Why? Because he's not the focus of this, of this uh, parable. The who is my neighbor question is not the focus. And that's what he's asking. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus barely describes this certain man. Because that's not the focus. Well, a man is beaten and left half, day, half dead. A Levite and a priest passed by. 
what should they do? Should they touch this half-dead man? Did you know that touching a full dead man is forbidden? What if they go over to him and the other half of the man dies? What are they supposed to do? They can't touch him. I just ought to stay back. The Levite and the priest are mentioned here because they have high status in, in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish within the Jewish uh, community. They're born into priestly families. They are elevated in society because of their ancestry, not because of what they have done or accomplished. Simply because of their, if you will, their last name. They're elevated in society. So for them not to help this man who had been beaten would have been seen as probably fine or maybe even as the right thing to do. I mean, these guys, they're the ones that are the high authority. They know what's best. They, they know what they're doing. Just, it's probably fine. What they, they just didn't go over to help the guy. Fine. Probably shouldn't. That's what people might think. Then there's this Samaritan. The Samaritan is an outcast in society and religion. The least respected people by the Jews they were considered unclean and were to be avoided. And he is the climactic figure in the story. Look what he did. Take note of what he did. Verse 33, he had compassion, so his heart was in it. Verse 34, he bound his wounds. You ever thought about that? What that would look like, like in real life? Like how much patience that would take? I mean, this dude's half dead. I mean, you're turning him over and getting the bandages on him. It takes time and patience. Then they, he pours on oil and wine. That stuff costs money. He sets him on his own animal, verse 35. So, what are you thinking? Sacrifice, inconvenience. Now, presumably, the Samaritan has to walk. Brought him to an inn, costs money. He took care of him. Again, takes time and patience. Then he gave the innkeeper two a two days, um, two days worth of wages, two denarii. A denarius is one day's wage. So more money involved. And then he opens up, he enters into this open-ended agreement with the innkeeper. He's like, basically he's saying, look, whatever else happens, just let me know. I'll take care of it. It's on me. That doesn't seem, that seems like a little bit risky to me. He's opening himself up to to be taken advantage of. This doesn't seem like, you know, like I said, this doesn't seem like fiscally responsible, right? Would Dave Ramsey approve? I'm just kidding, sorry. <laughs> I don't know if he'd approve, but probably, he probably would. All right. Um, what, what is he, what is this guy doing? Oh, get into this agreement with this innkeeper with. So he's, what, you know, what, what separates, though, this man from the other two men? It's not simply that they're Jews and he's Samaritan. The difference is his heart. His heart was in it. He loves his neighbor. He's not looking to justify himself, saying, well, is he really my neighbor? I mean, he lives like three doors down. <laughs> I mean, he's like, is he really my neighbor? Do I really have to talk to him? Because he's like way down the street. He's not looking to justify himself like the lawyer was. He says, there's a fellow human being, I love him. And then he demonstrates this compassion through his action and his risk-taking 
Jesus doesn't answer the man's question. Jesus flips the question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? It's a huge shift in focus. The point is not, who is my neighbor? The point is, be neighborly. Love your neighbor. Then Luke does not record the response of the lawyer, right? You kind of wish there was an end. Like, what, what did the dude, what did he do? Did he end up following Jesus or did he drift away? It's because that's, a, that's a, a device that authors will use in order to draw the reader into the story. We think, what would that guy do? Then we, we ought to be thinking, what would I do? If I heard that parable, what about me? So we don't, we're, not le- we're not left thinking, man, that Samaritan was a nice, or that, yeah, that Samaritan was a nice guy. We're not left thinking, sorry, that the lawyer was a good guy and he made the right decision or he was bad, he made the wrong decision. We're left thinking, what would I decide? Would I choose to do that? The call to follow Christ is serious. Are we neighborly? He took on serious risks because of his love for an unnamed, random fellow human being. Do we love people? I'm sure if you were to ask the priest and the Levite if they loved that guy, they would probably say, yeah, of course. Yeah, because we love everybody. So, do we love people like that? The rubber meets the road. Will we love other people more than ourselves? It's not some arbitrary feeling on the inside that you fall into. Love is laying down your life for your brother. Even, as the text says in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, 27, love your enemies. What else should we do to them? Love them. Pray for them. Bless them. What bless them means? Bless them means say kind and good things to and about them. What did I say? Love, pray, bless, and do good to them. That's your enemies. How much more ought we be that way to each other in this room? We're not enemies. We're brothers and sisters. Are we neighborly? Do we love people in such a way that is more concerned with their well-being than, when our, than with our own well-being or with our own bank account? For many of us, it starts with our closest neighbor. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5. Roommates, Are you trying to constantly make sure everyone does the exact same amount of chores in the house? Everyone's got to pull their own weight in the dorm or the apartment or whatever. Or do you hope that you get to serve the most? You can't wait to serve. You love your neighbors in that way. Children, how do you serve your parents? Not just when there's consequences for not serving your parents. You know what I'm saying? When they say, go and do this. Children, how are you looking for ways to serve your parents? You're Christians, so you love to serve. So, in what ways, children, are you serving your parents? Well, it's not my day to 
do the dishes. Eh, whatever. Sir. Or do we come up to the table like, this is not what I like to eat. We have, uh, we have all the dex- these expectations for our parents to serve us. How are you, children, serving your parents? In out-of-the-ordinary ways. Here's a little project. Surprise them this week. All right. What about people in the church, brothers and sisters, who serving each other, looking for ways to serve? Friends at work, friends at school. There's unbelievers all around us. How are we looking to serve them? There's random people we don't even know. People have wronged you. What about them? Love them. Love people. Love all people. Be neighborly. Does this characterize my life? Do we love people so much that we're willing to make sacrifices for them? We need this. Men, we need to lead in this area, serving people. It's on us. Love your neighbor. Point number two, love your God. I love how Luke follows the Good Samaritan parable with the story of Martha and Mary. Remember I told you, Luke is crafting this story in a particular way in order to make a particular theological point. This is exactly why he's, lest we think that this Christian life is all about loving our neighbor, lest we think the Christian life is all about doing and serving, there's actually a commandment that comes before commandment number two. The greatest commandment, love God. The second is like unto it, love neighbor. Exhibit A. Now, look at verse 38. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha here was distracted with much serving, while Mary sits at the Lord's feet and listens to to Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her, verse 42. She has chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. Love God first. The loving neighbor part flows out of your love for God. Do you see what's going on here? There is one thing necessary, and that is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teacher, in the position of a disciple of Jesus. Follow him, loving him first. That one thing that he's talking about, that good portion that he's talking about, is Jesus. It's himself. See, Martha was going hard after serving, but Mary going hard after Jesus. See, serving is not the end goal. We might be tempted to think that way after reading a story like the Good Samaritan. 
But that's not the end goal. No, Jesus is. So, get this. Serving is not the goal. Jesus is the goal always. So, how do we know when we get this mixed up? How do we know when we get this mixed up? Well, it's right here. Look what Martha, look what's happened with Martha. She is anxious and trouble. We find ourselves anxious. We find ourselves full of worry. We may need to step, take a step back and rethink. Go back to the basics. What am I here for? Who am I following ultimately? Am I like Martha, whose only concern is serving, and I'm not following hard after Jesus? Or am I like Mary, sits at, the, at Jesus' feet in the position of a disciple? The truth of this is most profoundly demonstrated in the gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. Jesus comes to be an obedient slave, Philippians chapter 2. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even on the cross in Luke chapter 22, or 23, Jesus demonstrates compassion when he looks at the people who are crucifying him. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor, the greatest neighbor of all time. And this was all for the glory of God. It's, it's not just for others. It's for the glory of God. Remember what he says? In the garden, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He says in John chapter 17 when he prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The, all the glory ultimately goes to the Father. Yes, he died for us, but in more real sense, he died for his name, for Jesus, for the sake of the name of the Father, the Trinity God. He loved his father. He loved the father with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. So yes, let's be people who love our neighbors and take this seriously. But more than that, let's be a people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I recently listened to a, a pastor who said, when I wake up in the morning, in my office, there is a desk, and that's where I do my study, my writing, my deep thinking, and then over here is my prayer nook. And that's where I go before the Lord. And he says, when I walk into that room, oh, how often I feel the draw to get stuff done before sitting at the feet of Jesus praying, demonstrating my need for him, pursuing God first. He says, I'm an American. We get stuff done. We produce things. I'm drawn that way. But may I pray, get on my knees regularly, showing that, yes, 
I really do need God first. So, dig into the word. Yes. Sit at Jesus' feet. Yes. And pray, pray, pray. Demonstrate your dependence on him. So, commandment number one, love God. Commandment number two, love neighbor. There's only one person left out of that. Me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Let's pray together.